Good morning, everyone. Uh, good afternoon to those who are viewing uh, this discussion from abroad in Turkey, in the Middle East, elsewhere. Um, we, we feel very uh, lucky to have uh, the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, Stephen Wertheim, with us. Um, it's a very interesting, fascinating book uh, on the origins of, of the U.S. global uh, supremacy. Um, it's a, it's, I'm hoping it's going to be a fascinating discussion. Uh, Stephen is currently the Deputy Director of Research and Policy at the Quincy Institute. He's also a uh, research scholar with Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University, uh, my alma mater as well. Um, my name is Kadir Ustun. I'm with the CETA Foundation at Washington, DC. Um, we focus on US-Turkey relations, US foreign policy in the Middle East, uh, and more generally US foreign policy. Uh, we've been doing uh, some of these book discussions um, on US foreign policy, and there has been an ongoing debate about what the US role should be in the world in the wake of uh, Afghan, Afghanistan war, Iraq war, what we call now endless wars. And um, many politicians have been uh, promising to pull the US out of those wars, but it's been quite difficult. And uh, Stephen asks a very interesting question in this book. And let me just show the book as well. Um, um, that what what are what is the or what how did we come to this idea that the U.S. should be the preeminent power, the leading power in the world? It should dominate the global affairs. It should lead the world. Classic stories, of course, after the Second World War. With the Second World War, uh, U.S. Uh, became the undeniable. Uh, leader of the world, and it was kind of unavoidable as the growing power of the United States prior to the Second World War made it almost, you know, impossible not to. Um, but the book is interesting in that it focuses on uh, about a 18 year, 18 month period in 1940 and 1941, and it 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 makes an argument. Uh, I'm going to, of course, let the author talk about the argument, but the, what struck me was that he, Stephen was saying U.S. leadership was at that point a conscious choice by uh, experts and policymakers at the time who, who were devising plans about how to manage the post-war uh, world, how to imagine U.S. role in that, in that world it wasn't happenstance. It was a, a careful construction in many ways, uh, um, driven by economic interests, uh, driven by geopolitical considerations, but also uh, ideology. Um, so it's a very interesting argument, and I think it, it contributes a lot to the you know debates around U.S. leadership, U.S. global leadership. And I want to turn to Stephen now to, to give us uh, main contours of his main argument in this book. Thank you, Stephen, again, for joining us. And thank you to those who 
who are joining us on Zoom, um, please feel free to post your questions in the chat Q&A box, not the chat. Uh, and then uh, if those of you on uh, social media post questions, our assistants will collect them and pose them to Stephen. Uh, so go ahead, Stephen, floor is yours. Good morning and good afternoon. I think you've uh, summarized the contours of the book pretty well. I guess the book for me arose out of a curiosity uh, that derived from the world I saw around me. And specifically this throughout my adult lifetime, so about three decades. Now, well, little, little less, I'm, I'm dating myself. But let's take that three decade period since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, I noticed that there was this bipartisan consensus uh, that the United States, of course, had to be the supreme military power on earth uh, and ring the world with US bases and make many security commitments abroad uh, and hold itself responsible for enforcing world order. And it seemed pretty clear to me, especially in the wake of 9-11 and the war on terror, wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., that there were at least some serious costs to playing this kind of role. So I wanted to know, historically, where did this commitment come from, since it seemed that there was so little um, contestation over the commitment in our own time. And I realized that actually that kind of naturalization of America's uh, global leadership global military leadership actually in, infuse the scholarship as well, uh, which is to say that historians and social scientists had, of course, paid a lot of attention to the rise of the United States to world power, but they had treated this as a kind of inexorable process often or in terms of some kind of struggle between internationalism and isolationism. And I didn't think that that was correct because it seemed to me that uh, one could find very few American policymakers who thought as, we, as they do today, that the United States should play a globe-spanning military role before 1940, which is to say for most of what is still most of American history, uh, and then there was a moment of decision. And that moment of decision crystallized as I went into archives and uncovered uh, a network of people who were doing quite serious post-war thinking and planning, some, some in private and some in public, in, the, in a public debate, uh, in a very tumultuous period in 18 months between the fall of France to Nazi Germany in the middle of 1940 and the attack on Pearl Harbor that officially brought the United States into World War II. And so I wanted to write the book understanding what were the reasons that prompted this decision for dominance, which uh, to be clear, was not just a decision about what the United States should do vis-a-vis -vis World War II, get in, stay out, aid the allies, um, but was actually squarely confronting the question of what America's post-war role should be. What was the general nature of international society and how did the United States need to define its responsibilities afterwards? So that's what the book uh, seeks to document. 
that moment of decision, uh, which I think continues to clearly what the, the consensus around military dominance developed then, uh, continues to uh, motivate, drive American foreign policy today, even though conditions in the world are quite different uh, from what they were in the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So Stephen, um, in the book, first chapter is actually devoted to the you know time period from the the foundation of the United States on, up until 1940, and you call that internationalism before isolationism. So you overall uh, you oppose the idea that you know isolationists. Uh, that, that was developed later, that term, and you oppose that term itself, that didn't people who, who thought that the US should stay within the continent, within, within the Western hemisphere, um, uh, did not actually oppose internationalism. Can you kind of, that was interesting for me, can you explain what existed prior to 1940 uh, before we move into detailed discussion about what happened in 40 and afterwards. Prior to 1940, there were a number of Americans who identified themselves as internationalists, um, but they did so without reference to something that later called became to be called isolationism. So if you were an internationalist, a self-described internationalist around the turn of the 20th century, and you were a prominent uh, American, or not prominent American, uh, you, you would say that internationalism meant making an attempt to have uh, intercourse, commerce with all, uh, stay out of power politics centered in Europe, and also perhaps make efforts to transcend that system of power politics. That, for example, is what Woodrow Wilson uh, claimed at least that his League of Nations was intended to do. He said it was not gonna be an entangling alliance, but rather a disentangling alliance. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, a nationalist and an internationalist. And so the discursive construction of, at that time was not isolationism versus internationalism, but rather uh, with, with, with each side being mutually exclusive, but rather the framing given by most people was, how does one find the right balance between nationalism and internationalism? Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of conceptual world, the terrain in which American foreign policy debate took place. And it was a very wide ranging debate. Uh, one could be, I would consider them to be an imperialist uh, and to be an internationalist, but they were also within the realm of internationalism uh, criticisms of imperialism as well, including criticisms of what uh, then prominent uh, intellectuals like uh, Raymond Leslie Buell in the 1920s called American imperialism intervention in, in even Latin America, mm -hmm. uh, to, to say nothing of affairs in Europe. So what there was, uh, was a, a consensus from the founding to 1940 that the United States should avoid what would be construed as military and political entanglements in the so-called old world centered in Europe and including 
Asia or most of Asia. Uh, I just think it's important not to misidentify that with isolationism, which is a term nobody really thought to use until the 1930s and 40s, and then for quite polemical purposes. Mm -hmm. Of course, um, I'm going to have no choice but to bring another uh, book because it was titled Isolationism, and we had an event very recently, Charles Kupchan uh, from Georgetown University. In, in that book, the framework um, is such that he, he explains what you explained and sees isolationist kind of um, ideas, starting with George Washington, actually, as his, you know, famous lines about entanglements in, in European power politics, he sees it as a strong impulse, almost like a default position for the US up until the Cold War, which he sees it as kind of um, aberration or exception. And then even today, that impulse being strong. I know you don't agree with the term isolationism because be using being used prior to 1940 but that kind of sense that we should stay you know protected uh within the continent and you know protected by two seas and not deal with european politics european matters of war and peace um seems to be a strong american impulse and uh ongoing one uh and he wants he says, like, we need to pay attention to it. And then looking forward, we need to, you know, understand this impulse very well. So uh, what is your take on, uh, I, I don't, I know you don't agree with the labeling, but pre-1940, because America did expand, it was an expansionist power, right? It took, overtook territory in the Americas. Uh, and it toyed with some of the, you know, Philippines and having that kind of in, um, interventions around, uh, well, limited intervention prior to 1940. I don't want to talk too much, but what's your take on that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I think um, if you redefine uh, some of our terms, uh, there's a lot of similarity between the story that uh, Charlie Cupchan tells and the one that I tell the 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 periodization is, is, is somewhat similar. And I think where we agree, and this is important, is that, uh, yes, for most of American history, the, there was a strong consensus around avoiding entanglements, uh, military entanglements, major commitments in Europe and most of Asia. That was a, you know, a extremely durable and wide consensus in American foreign policy. Perhaps we're seeing some aspects of that consensus return in our own time. Uh, that's debatable. Uh, but I think the point is incredibly valuable. Uh, but I think we, we dismiss it a little bit too much, or it, it, it's very hard to, I, I respect the way that uh, Charlie you know, tries to give a definition of isolationism. Um, but, but I think we have to kind of understand how that term emerged in actual usage. Uh, because the term, uh, it's just uh, clearly quite pejorative. And so once you start saying, well, this person's an isolationist, but maybe there's something to learn here, it's, it's hard to compute. Mm -hmm. uh, and the very term came into existence uh, is my book documents, because uh, really I'm a conceptual historian. If, 
if if anything, uh, that's at least part of my methodological toolkit. So I'm very interested in the way terms actually develop in history and are used in history. Mm -hmm. So this term was developed um, in order to uh, obfuscate, in order to say, okay, there are people who oppose the use of force beyond the hemisphere. Uh, they also, therefore, uh, must oppose any kind of US engagement with the outside world. So because they oppose mm -hmm. military intervention or military commitments, they oppose all forms of interaction. And I don't think actually that as, as scholars or, or public intellectuals, we it's enough to just kind of redefine the term and then say, okay, here, you know, I'm gonna use the term. Uh, there's a, just an inescapable, deeply embedded 90-year uh, uh, web of meaning that has attached itself. Yeah. Uh, so I actually think the term's important, and what's important about it uh, is precisely its usage to turn internationalism, previously about transcending power politics, into something that entailed U.S. armed dominance. Because from the traditional perspective of American internationalism, um, armed dominance looked unnecessary at best uh, and imperialistic at worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, and that, that shift happens in 1940 and 41. Uh, you identify not, not uh, you know, Pearl Harbor, but, but the fall of France uh, as the turning point for that, uh, for that consensus to be broken almost. And then U.S. coming up with a new conception. Talk to us about that turning point. Yeah, so this turning point is triggered by a specific event, uh, which is the shocking conquest of France by Nazi Germany within just six weeks in May and June 1940. Um, and that conquest created for the first time, the plausible, indeed for a while, likely specter that totalitarian powers would become the dominant powers in Europe and Asia. For several months, people assumed uh, that Nazi Germany had solved the riddle of offensive warfare so elusive in World War I and the stalemated conditions of World War I. It might well go on to, well, surely it would go on to rule Europe for the foreseeable future, then it formed the Tripartite Pact. It might well defeat Britain, take the British Isles, with it the British fleet and the British Empire. And so for the first time, Americans had to decide what did that mean for the United States? What would it mean for the United States to live in a world where Europe and Asia was dominated by uh, totalitarian powers? And the United States, yes, it, it could very well it seemed to most defend the Western hemisphere, um, but it wouldn't necessarily be able to trade on liberal American style terms or do much else in the rest of the world. And a real difference of view, a stark turning point um, was exposed. On the one hand, some people with a strong claim to acting in American tradition uh, took the view that the United States was secure in the Western Hemisphere as long as it could defend the entire hemisphere mm -hmm. by force 
uh, to keep any outside invader from gaining a territorial foothold from which they could plausibly invade North America. That was the view of the America First Committee, uh, a very wide ranging set of Americans. Um, and they had a, a plausible claim to be internationalists as well as nationalists that, you know, it was in America's internationalist tradition, not to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy and make entangling uh, military commitments in Europe and Asia and get involved in this system of power politics and try to dominate. But on the other hand, most uh, US foreign policy makers, including those in the Roosevelt administration and in semi-official spaces, which were quite important at the time because the US state was still quite small, especially when it came to foreign policy, they were coming to a different conclusion. They were coming to the conclusion that it was, it would maybe be sufficient for American security and prosperity, but it was certainly not ideal for the United States to live in the long term within a hemispheric uh, security perimeter and order. Mm -hmm. And so by the fall of 1940, uh, as Britain proved that it was hanging on, actually, against the Nazi onslaught, uh, they started to think that in order for the United States to maintain other aspirations that it had in the name of American nationalism and internationalism, a desire for universal uh, intercourse, mm -hmm. a desire for a decent American style world order, uh, a view which we associate today with the term American exceptionalism, that the United States should be the engine of world history. That required much more than a hemispheric conception, but indeed required the United States to uh, hold maximum power in the world, as some of the post-war planners in the Council on Foreign Relations put it in October of 1940. And so uh, it was precisely because, in their view, that traditional internationalism had failed. It was naive to think that power politics could ever be transcended, that they thought the United States should then uh, take the lead as the dominant military power and enforce the terms of world order. Thank you for that. Um, you talk about the critical role played by civilian analysts and experts. Um, you, you, you spend a lot of time on CFR, uh, people around CFR, and there's, I guess, a little bit of revolving door as well. Some of them start being employed by the government and then they define and shape policy at that time. Um, but what I was uh, kind of, uh, I wanted to ask you, FDR's role, he seems very receptive, right? He, he champions this, uh, this uh, new role for the US. And of course, you would remember like there was a lot of military buildup prior to it. So how, how cynical are you about um, FDR's intentions, um, him being readily convinced almost, of course, not readily. We know that Churchill spent a lot of time, the British spent a lot of time trying to get American support, get involved. Um, but can you talk more about FDR's role for those who are curious about CFR portion? You can refer to the book for sure, but I, I was curious more about that actually. 
I think, and this is why I wrote the book the way that I did, that um, historians have kind of made too much of FDR in a way. I mean, it sounds strange. Uh, such an important uh, president, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's, he's pretty much in line with um, the thinking of American, a good portion of American foreign policy elites. And if we really want to understand their ideas, FDR is not the person to go to. Uh, you know, reading his tea leaves, very difficult. He, he's a savvy politician, for sure. Every right to be one. Uh, and um, so, you know, I don't, I actually don't, you know, um, share the kind of theories that FDR was like trying to get the United States into war or he knew about Pearl Harbor. And I'm critical in the book of some of the um, non-interventionists who could kind of never get over that and and tried to you know find scapegoats mm -hmm. um, for what I think was their own defeat in in American politics. Um, yeah. There was a, a robust argument. Uh, they lost that argument. Of course, power always comes into the equation when we're talking about politics. Um, but it wasn't, I think, fundamentally because, as some of them claim that you know the British were trying to influence U.S. opinion or. Um, or you know, FDR was trying to steer the country in one direction or the other. I mean, I think it's actually pretty clear if you look at even public discourse um, as of the turn of 1940, 41, mm -hmm. that uh, you know, people like Walter Lippmann, not a not a, a obscure figure, were saying the United States is in the war in all but name. We've clearly made a decision that it's more important uh, to uh, support uh, the allies. Uh, to make sure that the Axis powers don't win than it is to keep out of war. And, Amer and the American public from September of 1940 was firmly in support of that position, even if few people, in my view, including FDR, you know, thought it made sense for the United States at that point to formally enter the war as a belligerent. So um, I have this view of, of basically de-exceptionalizing FDR. I think he's quite in line with a lot of the thinking that that I point out, but particularly when it comes to not the question of you know getting the United States into war, uh, but the longer-range question of post-war thinking, of you know what's the nature of international society and the place of America in the world to come. He just doesn't have the uh, you know time and space to devote a whole lot of attention to that, and he's quite in line with the the thinking of planners who are indeed directly influencing him, including on the question of whether the United Nations should be created, which uh, at first FDR is skeptical about, and then he comes around to uh, based on uh, what he hears from his post-war planners in the State Department. Yeah, I, I was uh, struck by how quickly that happened and became adopted as a grand strategy. So that's why I was probing FDR's role, because it's one thing, all these plans being made, but then another thing for it to be adopted, despite, actually, there's one question here, uh, um, comment, actually, from Mark Perry. He says, you know, the, the draft uh, vote actually passed only by a single vote. So in the middle of, it's not like a, yes, you talk, you outline very well how it was sold to the American public. And, you know, it was a 
robust discussion and at the end non-interventionists uh, i guess uh, lost that debate like you said but it was a close call it wasn't like you know overwhelming victory for the supporters of that kind of role for the us um and um he also comments, Mark, that you know, in the World War II, people like Lindbergh were stigmatized as not only isolationism, but uh, also it was seen as appeasement. Um, so um, that that um, FDR's role was was interesting for me. But then I want to move to my next question about that leadership. Uh, there is a debate whether being part of an Anglo world, right, um, led by the British still, or co-led. But then that debate ends up being um, about American leadership. Also, I was very curious, you don't talk a lot about economic incentives, but isn't this a story of, at the end of the day, sort of capitalism searching for new markets and it just can't, mm -hmm. is that, D d would you consider that kind of drive underneath that that enabled expansion in the pre you know 1940 period uh, and and in the in this period they look at the world hey you know if all these markets are close to us what are we going to do well the united states had the world's largest economy of any country by 1870 mm -hmm. United States overtook the scale of the combined British Empire, according to Adam Tooze, in the middle of World War I. For all these decades, American foreign policy elites did not think that America's economic supremacy required military supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, and when I look at the calculations, the specific calculations made in 1940 and 41, uh, economic calculations play a role, but they're not uh, derived from, you know, the baseline of what does the American economy require for its prosperity, but rather the questions that some of the planners, the Council on Foreign Relations asked was, um, how do we create a world order, a sphere, that will be more that will have more bargaining power than a projected nazi dominated europe uh, and will make as little compromise with liberal capitalism as possible so instead of the government regiment uh, regimenting trade in order to strengthening uh, to, to to be more competitive in a potential geoeconomic competition with an axis order the solution to creating more bargaining power was to expand the sphere until essentially it became the entirety of the non-German world. And then once planners began to imagine that Germany could be completely defeated within Europe, the entire world. So this is why it's, it's difficult, I think, to give an, an obvious um, narrowly economistic reading of this decision. Mm -hmm. And I don't, intend my book to be anything like the last word. Uh, the sources here, the debates are incredibly rich um, in this period. Mm -hmm. um, and 
what I've written is actually a fairly short book. But this is why I think, um, you know, if you if you push me, there's, a, I think, a really coherent geopolitical and geoeconomic explanation one can give. Uh, and it maps on with a kind of ideological explanation as well mm -hmm. um, about America's place in the world and this aspiration for a basically liberal kind of world order. And those are the, I think those are the explanations that I think are most, were most powerful um, in, in that moment. Thank you for that. I, I want to refer to one more chapter of your book, uh, what you call instrumental internationalism. So we've heard complaints uh, since forever about, uh, you know, international organizations being sort of uh, promising, establishing, promising to establish peace and order around the world, but then being kind of uh, sacrificed uh, to the great power politics uh, among the big players. Uh, and you look at the time period where it was conceptualized and then um, to almost like a, you know, a PR thing for the domestic consumption. It's, it's very counterintuitive in many ways, right? You enter into an international coalition to be able to uh, sell it to your domestic public. Uh, can you explain some of the dynamics of that, um, how the UN came to be created? Right, so after I found this decision uh, for dominance, rooted in 1940 and 41, I found another decision that I was not quite expecting to find in the archives, which was a decision to take the State Department planners early in 1942 that the United States should spearhead the creation of a new international organization with universal membership. Um, this was not an obvious choice. Given that the same planners had just decided that after the war, the United States should abandon its historic aversion to extra hemispheric entanglement and take up military leadership, precisely because they thought that instruments like the League of Nations were hapless. They had clearly failed to prevent uh, aggression and revisionism in the 1930s and then World War II. They were no solution to the problem of world order. And yet, so, so, so why then create a universal organization, which initially FDR was not interested in? It was proposed actually by Winston Churchill in the Atlantic Charter, jointly issued by Churchill and Roosevelt mm -hmm. in August of 1941. And at that time, FDR said no, only America and Britain uh, could keep the peace in the post-war world. That was his view. So there's a shift. Uh, and interestingly, the reason that there's a shift, um, most of all, seems to be about concerns about the American public. Would the American public revert to so-called isolationism, which you might say was actually a way of putting its traditional uh, internationalism after the war and refuse to be 
the preeminent power and project military power into Europe across the globe. And they thought that it was um, imperative for this purpose for the United States to create a new world organization, which becomes the United Nations with universal membership uh, to show that the United States was not just another empire, uh, but was leading this sort of rule-based um, cooperative consensual order. Mm. And that uh, you know, is the first and I think most powerful reason given uh, by American post-war planners for why the United Nations should exist. Uh, and indeed, as I show in the blast parts of the book, uh, in the period of US belligerency in the war, 1942 to 1945, there's a kind of massive effort to have a, uh, a debate uh, without really another side of that debate uh, amongst the public to, to win ratification of the UN Charter, but the UN Charter was really not a controversial uh, proposition. And indeed it sailed through the Senate with just two votes in opposition. And so for Americans at the time, what the UN Charter represented was this commitment that the United States was in the world to stay as a preeminent, the preeminent power and was casting off what was now being roundly called this tradition of isolationism uh, as if internationalism had always meant that the United States would project power uh, in military terms throughout the world and just had to defeat isolationism in order to be enthroned. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a you know su surprising finding because in, in our own time, and indeed quickly, you know, as the Cold War progressed, there were, have been nationalist attacks on US activities through international organizations such as the UN. Yeah. Uh, and so we're used to, you know, the nationalist US view or the pro power projection view being critical of the UN. Uh, but I think it might be worth thinking about the history uh, through the perspective of those who thought it was worthwhile for the United States to create the UN precisely because it could provide crucial legitimacy for US global leadership. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And indeed the United States uh, Congress has not uh, bothered to declare war since 1942. And this is something that FDR explicitly said in 1944 that you know the UN would be an instrument through which uh, you know, a, a rapid use of military force as a policing operation would take place without having to wait for uh, the US Congress to, to authorize it. Yeah, well, uh, several wars, I believe, if I'm not wrong, is, uh, are being conducted right now, prosecuted on the AUMF, if I'm not wrong, uh, from early 2000s. Um, but um, so uh, you do uh, imagine uh, there's a very difficult, uh, broad question. Maybe I'll pose that to you. Uh, but I, that is in line with uh, me wanting to bring the discussion to, to our day. Um, so it's, the question is, again, from Mark. Uh, it's an interesting, even fascinating history. And yet here we are 
is it possible for the U.S. to now, after 80 years since the beginning of World War II, to turn back the clock? How do we reclaim our original conception of a nation that leads by example instead of by force? <laughs> it's a large well, question, but <laughs> it's a, that's a doozy. Yes, <laughs> um, I you know this this let me put it in my words then uh, <laughs> sure. because. I, one of my questions is about that. Okay, what is wrong with this, right? Let me be the devil's advocate. U.S. established a liberal uh, capitalist world order. It has worked. Uh, democracies didn't fight each other. Liberal capitalism is a good thing. Uh, freedom is a good thing. Total, if, it, if we left it to the Chinese and the Russians and the others, the world would be a darker place goes on and on so that argument right what is wrong with that liberal world order mm -hmm. that, i have a lot of sympathy yeah. for the architects of american primacy mm -hmm. and i hope it comes through in in the book um i think that the circumstances that they faced were terrible uh and frankly i decided to spend all these years you know, dusting through archives and writing the book because I I I think it was a, a very difficult situation. I think that American primacy initially did not respond to a straightforward um, threat that the United States faced, and yet, in a world stalked by Axis powers and then Soviet-backed communism, um, there was great force to the idea that. Uh, you know, better, better our power than, than their power. So I don't dismiss that at all. Um, I think, though, that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. that even the people who had planned American global dominance, if they had been around, they would have, some of them at least, would have said, wait, wait a minute, the, the, the premise of US military dominance was the, the, the need for it arose from the existence of an actual totalitarian threat of conquest on a vast scale. And that is not in the cards today. And what better circumstances could there be, talking about the 1990s, for the United States to practice retrenchment um, and define its interests, its vital interests, the interests over which it would go to war and make security commitments more narrowly. Obviously, that road was not taken. And it was not taken in part because of the legacy uh, of US global leadership and the successes, perceived and real successes of that very task, which, of course, then built up uh, you know, uh, the military industrial complex and, and so forth. But, you know, even if there had not been a military industrial complex, given the uh, accumulated experience and the perceptions of that experience, I'm not, you know, sure how, how the debate would have gone. Mm -hmm. So I think in our own time, then, this history helps us understand, in my view, that U.S., armed primacy has become something like an end unto itself. Okay. All right. So that's for the last three decades, but you still have the very 
fair question. Well, what should we do now? I mean, now uh, there's increasing authoritarianism in the world, including among US allies. Uh, there's a, a assertion by you know, competitors <clears throat> of some size, Russia, China in particular. Um, it's not, I'm not for willy-nilly, you know, withdrawals militarily from the world. But I think the United States ought to be a lot more discriminating. And we shouldn't just assume that if the United States pulls back, the absolute worst will happen. I mean, I'm also concerned that if the United States continues to pursue dominance in every region, um, the worst can happen meaning a great power war. Mm -hmm. So this is a very difficult question. And I still think, I mean, it would have been better for the United States to embark on uh, a less dominant military role in the 1990s. That was the, the golden opportunity that I think unfortunately was missed. Uh, but frankly, today, I think the costs uh, of continuing in this kind of role may be mounting in a world of increasing multipolarity, the dangers of serious costs for the United States above all, mm -hmm. others as well, uh, are going to increase over time. Yeah, uh, I'll let me uh, be continue to be the devil's advocate on one more thing. So when you look at the endless war in Iraq, uh, right? It, fits that category. It actually, for many would, many would argue that it started as, as a good war, right? In the first Gulf War was a good American intervention. It was well-designed allies, and then it pulled out. It was, it exercised restraint. But then second story, again, another rupture, perhaps 9-11 and what happened afterwards. Uh, but, you know, so in that liberal world order, there could be good wars, like good application of American military yes. supremacy. Would you subscribe to that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, look, mm -hmm. uh, when you're the number one power, it makes a big difference if you're judicious uh, and humane in your decisions or not. Mm -hmm. And that matters immensely. Uh, it matters immensely to me. Um, and you've given a good example, you know, the, the Persian Gulf War, uh, you know, I, I think was fought for very strong reasons. I do think, though, that the United States began to station tens of thousands of troops in the Middle East for the first time in the wake of that war. Uh, and that is part of, part of the trajectory uh, that has produced uh, endless war for the United States in the region. Uh, so, and of course, the second Iraq war, I think we probably agree on. Uh, but what I would you know, disagree with is the notion that there's some kind of world order, liberal world order, et cetera, that exists in our three decade plus era that is in fact underpinned by US security commitments and dominance in military terms. Mm -hmm. There was an argument for that um, 
that was quite coherent in the middle of the 20th century. I don't in fact think that's the true choice today. And I think we have to rank, um, you know, not just, uh, you know, reckless use of force by a whole range of act actors, uh, but also the United States as obstructions to um, what I would identify as rules and liberal order. So that calculus needs to include everybody. We have to look at sanctions policies as well as obstructions. Yeah. Um, I want to take one more question. Uh, this is from Robert Friedman. Would you not have used military power to stop the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and the attacks on Kosovo Muslims? Right. Um, well, I think for the United States, uh, again, it would be better. And frankly, I think this is true of the international community. For the United States, in structural terms, to step back and not always be in the position of having to face difficult questions like this, is it the United States that is called upon to take the lead uh, to undertake humanitarian interventions, for example? I'm quite sympathetic to uh, the uh, intervention on behalf of Bosnia, which was a, an internationally recognized state which is often not the case in questions of humanitarian intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're taking actions in that uh, vein, there is at least a kind of plausible post-war outcome that one can get to. Kosovo, I think a much a more difficult case uh, where there were significant costs in structural terms, uh, you know, doing an end run around the Security Council. I mean, that was an illegal war as some as some admitted at the time, uh, the humanitarian consequences in the short run may have been positive. Although then again, uh, when Milosevic capitulated, it was uh, something of a surprise to American policymakers who were already starting to think about sending in 175,000 NATO forces in a ground invasion. So what I think is most important there is just that you know those interventions, we shouldn't overread the lessons, I think, from those interventions. Even if you support them, uh, those were you know, rare cases where um, humanitarian intervention look a bit better. These are kind of the shining cases uh, than in other cases. Uh, and I, I would say that you know, um, we should be more concerned with um, sins of commission uh, in the use of force by the United States and any other state, uh, and a little bit less concerned uh, about alleged sins of omission mm -hmm. uh, than we've been for the last several decades. Yeah. So uh, when you look at um, a trend that started with perhaps Obama after the Iraq war, and continues under uh, Trump. Uh, do you see sort of the the U.S. foreign policy moving away uh, from global supremacy to some extent, at least? Um, you know, every president now promises to pull out of these wars, and they tend to reduce the footprint uh, overall. 
they can't fully pull out, but you know, that's another story. Do you see a movement in the right direction in that sense? And uh, how do you see, you know, Trump-Biden di uh, dichotomy? Is it a dichotomy in this sense? Yeah, there is, I, I tend to think uh, of history in dialectical terms. Mm -hmm. So I think on the one hand, there is, I think we all kind of recognize, uh, we, folks in the town behind me and you, um, that you know, there's no going back to the unipolar moment of the 1990s for the United States or anybody else. Um, and there was a lot of hubris involved. I think on the one hand, there is a um, movement to change course by adopting the framework of great power competition as the Trump administration's Pentagon has put it, and try to refocus US efforts away from, say, the Middle East, possibly away from Europe, uh, and toward the rise of China in particular. And that is, to a degree, rational. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it could result in the United States applying some of the same indiscipline uh, in its foreign policy to relations of graver consequence. Mm -hmm. Nor do I personally see China as, you know, committed to the kind of conquest or domination that would slot it into the ranks of the Axis powers or Soviet-backed communism. It could happen, um, but I'm, I do not see the capability or the behavior as of now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm concerned I'm about Yeah, many would argue that it will get there, right? There are recent military moves in the South China Sea. And there's also domestic politics here, you know, the shipping of all those jobs. There's a, you know, economic yeah. side to this. Uh, you, you're, are we at another moment of saying, look, we have to respond, right? Like maybe 1940. We have no choice but to respond for geopolitical, economic, and ideological reasons. There's clearly a powerful tendency to say that, and uh, with a lot of evidence of, uh, you know, aggressive Chinese and objectionable Chinese actions to back it up. But, you know, on the other hand, China is not about to invade, uh, or I don't think anybody believes it's about to invade, you know. U.S. allies like uh, Japan or South Korea, Philippines, etc. The United States could use the period of time that it has now uh, to pull back, uh, encourage, incentivize its allies and partners to step up. They are they are more threatened by uh, potential Chinese aggression than the United States is from across the Pacific Ocean. So it depends, you know, what, how much the United States wants to put itself on the front lines of a potential future conflict. But the other, you know, trend that I think you're pointing to, uh, you know, starting from maybe 15 years ago, as the Iraq War went clearly south, and we saw Barack Obama, uh, I think, become the Democratic nominee in 2008 uh, because of his opposition to the Iraq War. Uh, and so on. The other trend is a trend that really questions 
um, what is the United States doing in the world? What, what, why is it defining its um, vital interests and thus its threats so expansively? Uh, and obviously, I'm part of an effort to, to, to really press on that question uh, and make the United States much more discriminating in the way it makes security commitments and so forth. Um, but, you know, I think it's not a, um, and, and they're clearly they're powerful structural trends domestically and internationally pointing in this direction. So I do expect, you know, we, we see something, some lines of continuity from Obama to Trump to I expect a Biden administration mm -hmm. uh, that will point in the direction of retrenchment or at the very least not, um, you know, continuing a trend toward overextension. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, that that will continue. What I worry about is that if the United States can't find a way at some point uh, to say, yes, you know, we can make prudent retrenchments in a responsible way that uh, it will be so overcommitted at a certain point that really difficult circumstances will arise. Essentially, our bluff will be called in, in several different places at once. And that would have extremely negative consequences, both for the United States and uh, for the allies in question. Stephen, just as you were talking uh, in the last minute, uh, three questions popped up. So I want to answer them all, but we only have uh you know, three, five minutes, uh, two of them are on China. So I'll combine them. One asks, Michael Kurtzik asks, what about Taiwan? There's a real danger of Chinese aggression, question mark. And then the other one is, do you believe that the US from Steve Desina, do you believe that the US needs to respond to China's Belt and Road economically as they did militarily to the Axis and the Soviets? And can you equate Belt and Road economic conquest to axes and Soviet ambitions for military conquest? Yeah, um, those are excellent questions. I, I don't equate um, Chinese actions through the Belt and Road uh, with military conquest. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's actually quite important to, um, to separate the economic challenges as well as the technological challenges, environmental challenges that China poses, uh, which are profound, uh, from military challenges. And they're, they're all getting kind of lumped together, I fear, in uh, US uh, thinking, uh, especially over the past four years, over the course of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, you know, and if you're you know, really concerned, for example, about being competitive with China economically, seems to me that uh, you know, spending half of the US federal discretionary budget year after year on the Pentagon uh, is not an asset uh, that more domestic investments should be made. And we can come up with uh, better deals uh, for uh, states that seek development assistance and other forms of aid, if that's what we think uh, is so significant. Mm -hmm. So we've got to, I think, disaggregate some of these challenges from China, because again, its record of military, external military aggression uh, has not been, uh, you know, it's 
it's not that I'm sanguine, uh, but it has not been anything like, you know, what we saw from the Axis powers or, or, or the Soviet Union as well. Now, Taiwan uh, is, uh, is different, of course, uh, and that is a very difficult um, challenge. There's some discussion now about whether the United States should abandon its historic policy of strategic ambiguity uh, and make a, an explicit commitment to defend Taiwan. I fear that that would be destabilizing. I think the United States ought to. I mean, I would do not want to see China invade Taiwan. Um, and I would like Taiwan, ideally, I think we probably all like Taiwan, to be able to defend itself. And the United States, I think, should, uh, if necessary, give Taiwan weapons that can turn it into a porcupine and enable it to practice mutual denial with China that could uh, result in a more stable situation. But it's a quite concerning situation right now. What I fear, though, is that uh, the United States may put itself on the front lines of a potential conflict. And that is a situation at, at the very least, the United States should be working to avoid, not actively trying to seek. Last question. We are over our time, but I'll still, I want to get to it. Well, Michael Oppenheimer is asking, was the decision not to retrench post-Cold War a reflection of the view that the end of history was a transitory moment and that allowing the institutions of primacy to atrophy would find us again at a 1940 moment? That's a very interesting question because it's uh, contrary to conventional wisdom. Uh, you know, one of the books I, I might have in me would be a book on precisely the 1990s and the thinking about the future uh, there. So maybe that's a to be to be determined and investigated by me in the future. I mean, the, the conventional view is, 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 is the opposite, that primacy was instituted uh, out of confidence that the end of history moment would endure. And you know, to take, for example, the defense planning guidance uh, issued uh, toward the end of the George H.W. Bush administration, the view was that the United States was so powerful and could maintain such dominance in every region that it would dissuade both potential US adversaries and US allies from building up uh, strength of their own. Uh, but a very, a very provocative question. Yeah. Stephen, I want to thank you and all the participants very much. I didn't, I, I still had questions. So, because it's, a, it's such an interesting discussion. Uh, do buy it, <laughs> read it. It's a great book. Um, uh, thank you, Stephen, for joining this discussion. Thank you. Thanks to, for all who attended. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, all participants. Okay.